Welcome to the Rings of Power Lorecast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to the mispronunciations of Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. And I'm John. This is our season wrap-up podcast for The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. In this episode, we'll have three segments. First, we'll have our overall thoughts about the end of season one, and then we'll have some listener feedback to consider. After that, we have a supersized interview with returning Tolkien scholar Marilyn R. Pukila. And at the end of that interview, we talk book spoilers. Before we get started, a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondage at baldmove.com. And we won't be reading those on air because the show is over, but we promise to read your emails and consider your feedback as we look forward to season two. But that does not need to be the end of the conversation. Join David and I and many others from the Bald Move community over on the Bald Move Discord server. Link is in the description below and at baldmove.com. The mods over on the Bald Move Discord have set up a channel dedicated for Rings of Power content, and they do a great job of keeping the conversation fun and engaging while managing for those who are still catching up on the episodes. All right, here's our plug time. Is uh, Before Season 1 aired, David and I recorded an eight-episode primer series on Tolkien's Middle-Earth Legendarium designed to prep viewers for the Rings of Power. You can find all of those episodes in our Lorehounds feed and on our new Patreon. We encourage you to head back to those episodes if you feel like you're interested in the wider expanse of Tolkien's Middle-Earth saga. In the show notes below, there are direct links to each episode, and not only do we cover the lore of Middle-Earth, but... We also talk about Tolkien himself and a number of other real-world influences and how this all came to be. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, to get all our content for other upcoming shows. More about that in a moment. And please, if you've got a moment, rate and review our podcast to help other people find it. All right, John, with all that administrative uh, stuff out of the way... Let's talk uh, a little bit of programming notes before we get into our season wrap-up and listener feedback. We did something today. What did we do? We launched our Patreon. And oh today, you God. mean uh, when we're recording this. So yes, it's, when uh, we're it's, recording this. It's ready for you. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Um, we had a number of people requesting ad-free versions of our podcasts. And we thought, what the heck? Why not give it a shot? Doesn't hurt. And in fact, it works better for Bald Move and for us if we have our own individual Patreon feeds, even though we're going to go out on the public feeds uh, still on baldmove.com. And big shout out to Jim and Aaron from Bald Move who have been encouraging us all the way to go forward with our own Patreon and to build our uh, community. So thank you for that. Uh, you can find a bunch of different benefits on it, not just ad-free podcasts, but you can get early episodes, uh, depending on the tier. You can get a shout-out, uh, a lot of fun stuff. So we, we tried to make this a uh, an additive thing. You can still listen to our ad-filled podcast if you want. We're still here, uh, but we'd love to have you on the Patreon if you'd like. Are, are we keeping it leal, John? We always keep it leal. You can get the t-shirt now at baldmove.com. <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah, so we've got on on the heels of the Patreon information there, then we have some programming news uh, about some other shows that we're covering. First off, we are covering Andor. We did season one, episode one through six, recap sort of supersized podcast. And then we just did episode seven. 
And our expectation is is that we're going to have another podcast out for episodes 8, 9, and 10, which are going to be a self-contained story arc, and then another podcast out after uh, episodes 11 and 12 drop, which is also another self-contained story arc in the Andor storyline. Yeah, I'm really excited to keep talking about Andor with you, David. Uh, You you very much uh, convinced me to watch this show. But once I got in, I, there was no going back. I, I want to podcast more about it. If I had more time in my life, I probably would. Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering if how, how we're going to shake that out. At a minimum, we're going to have two, two more podcasts out about Andor. And, you know, maybe we'll slip in one or two if we can. But uh, it is time consuming uh, to do this podcasting stuff. So that said, we're super enjoying that show and we hope that you enjoy the podcast for that. Um, then starting on November 1st, I think, is that right, John? Is that when our first White Lotus podcast is going to drop? That's right, because on October 30th, the first episode drops. Uh, so that's the Sunday following the premiere of this current podcast. And we're going to be talking about, you know, a full episode of recap. We're going to be doing sort of real world lore because we're, we're not talking about elves here. We're talking about the island of Sicily. Uh, and we're going to be talking about production details. Uh, you know, why is the guy from School of Rock running this show? Great question. We'll let <laughs> you know. Very good question. I've even been doing research on white lotus flowers themselves. Ah, so yeah, so we've got a lot of details for you. We've got the Lorehound treatment as well as a nice recap. So we'll see you there, hopefully. Yep. And then we're just holding on Wheel of Time. So as soon as um, Amazon lets us know when that's going to drop, we'll be doing full coverage. So keep your eyes and your ears out for that. In the meantime, we're looking at other ideas and, and we have other thoughts. So if there's any shows that you might like us to cover, you know, you're always welcome to drop us a line and we can consider those. Um, but yeah, we're having a good time podcasting, I think. Aren't we, John? I I am. Yeah, I am. You let me know if that changes, please. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that covers all of our programming notes. Anything else that we uh, should touch on there other than the Patreon? Yeah, no, I think we're good. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the wrap of, of this season. It is a big topic. Um, how you feeling? It was, a, it was a heck of a season. You know, I feel pretty sober about it right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I would say I went in hopeful and cautiously optimistic. Yeah. I was enamored with the first few episodes. As we all were. I was... Very let down by episodes, I would say, five through seven. Right. Mostly six and seven. Right. And then episode eight brought it back around to a pretty good show for me. Yeah. You know, it's... um. So, I don't want to talk about lore details here on my overall thoughts, because we went so deep into that with Marilyn Bukila, so I'm going to keep it to storytelling and whatnot. Sounds good. But, you know, the production value is obviously amazing. Uh, I, I can't think of a single criticism I have for the visuals or the sound design, et cetera, except maybe a little bit too music at times, uh, too, too much music at times. But the storytelling needed some work. They needed to figure out what they wanted to do with certain characters, specifically the Numenorians. They did not know what to do with them a lot of the time. Uh, and they needed to give me more quiet moments with these characters like you get in Tolkien. Uh, like I've brought up a couple times, there was a quote in the you know, this New York Times interview with the showrunners where they said, well, every scene, including the small ones, seems to tie back into good versus evil. And I don't think that's true. I think that we need to let the show breathe a little bit more. 
And while I understand the time constraints, I don't think that we move the plot enough forward this season to justify letting go of all those moments. You know, yeah. When you're when you're when you're bringing multiple plot lines in that you didn't necessarily need to bring in, I still stand by. I don't think you needed Numenor this season at all. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know that might be an unpopular opinion, but I, I just don't think it added anything to the show this season. I, I still want to see it, but I want to see it yeah. done well next season. I think we got some listener feedback about that too, so we can we can come back around to that topic in a, in a moment. Yeah, but really, my main criticism is just you know do less and do more with it. Pick a few things to focus on. Pick a few characters and storylines to focus on and do them really well. Uh, right now, I think they're juggling too much at the same time, and they're not giving us enough time with these characters. So I hope that season two, they can slow it down a little bit and they can get through the plot in a way that feels satisfying with the characters. What did you think, David? Well, I'm not going to lie. I <laughs> I feel a little exhausted, to be to be truthful. Yeah. Um, there was so much emotional energy packed into this season, these eight episodes of television. That, and then it was sort of, um, squ- you know, squared, if you will, by the fact that House of the Dragon was on at the same time. Yeah. And so here we are holding these, probably the two biggest fantasy Titles. I mean, I think we're, Wheel of Time is the other third one. You know, the other Wheel of Time pairs in com- it pales in comparison. Not in terms of I, I love Wheel of Time, but in terms of popularity, I think that you are absolutely right. That it's Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones as far as big IPs and fantasy. Harry Potter too. There you go. There, yeah. If you want to throw another huge one in there, yeah. And Harry Potter is is not Game of Thrones. So let's. Not I well, I mean, look, it's not it's not gritty and it's not for adults like specifically, but it's certainly as popular if not more that's true that's that's a good point yeah and if we're just talking about scale right um and and how well known things are and so yeah tolkien's legendarium has been a deep part of many people's lives for a long time and so it, it's it wasn't that i think emotional for martin's work to be brought to the screen because it's so recent and he's still alive um, and so for Tolkien to be brought to the screen after Jackson's uh, initial success with the three movies, um, there's a lot at stake for a lot of people. I think most of those people don't actually have any real skin in the game. It's just their feelings and their thoughts and their emotions. And, and those are important because that's the fandom, right? You know, that's that's us, the fans, investing into um, this secondary world. And so all the swirl around it, Amazon, Amazon, Bezos, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it, you know, oh, did they, did they, you know, they paid a billion dollars and what's the estate doing and all of this kind of stuff. So there's all that emotional charge. And then there's the whole, you know, Tolkien purity um, issue, you know, like, are you being truthful and, and are you destroy? oh, you're destroying Tolkien's, you know, lifetime of work. So there's all that. And then there's just people who just love this world and just love these characters and and enjoy the heck out of it on just a purely entertainment basis. And so that huge amount of emotional energy going into the season, I honestly feel a little bit exhausted. I mean, we were just sort of surfing one of the side waves of this whole thing, but just watching all that was going on, all the marketing, all the social media, all of the blogs and 
podcasters and YouTubers just pushing out massive amounts of, of content. I, it's just like a tsunami of, uh, of content and emotion and energy. And I just, I feel really drained. That said, I am in a position where I'm looking forward to season two. And I'm like, okay, guys, when are we getting season two? Come on, I'm ready. Like, you know, bring me the next iteration of the story. I want to know where Meteor Man and Nori are going. I want to know what's going to happen to uh, Galadriel. I, I, are they going to make the seven and the nine rings? Yeah, Numenor, I think, was one of the... Some, we had some problems with the storytelling there, but I'm still really interested. Like, what's going to happen with Elin, uh, Elin, ah, Elin? Okay, now I can't pronounce Elendiel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, we told you that this is the guide to the mispronunciations of, of Middle so anyway, I'm, I'm really in a, in a great position where I'm, I'm tired and I'm ready for a little bit of a break, but at the same time, I can already feel my mind going, okay, so like I'm ready for a teaser, like when are they going to let us know, like what can we expect? So I'm, I think I'm in a good position. I think the showrunners left me in the position that they would want most of the fans of the show to be in, which is, okay, we're ready, you know, season two, bring it on. David, are you telling me that you're ready to read The Silmarillion? I think I'm ready to talk about our next Tolkien-related podcasting project. All right, David. So we don't know what it's called yet, but once a month after this show ends, we're going to start reading a story a month from The Silmarillion, not based on chapter, but based on individual stories. So it'll be a little bit more digestible. Uh, we're going to do it in a way that you can listen to if you don't read at all, but we'll give you recommended reading beforehand so that you can have a better experience. And so we're going to take everybody through the whole creation story through the first stage and then right up to where we started the Second Age podcast. Yeah, I like this idea of of not trying to read it cover to cover, but reading it for the stories that are involved and and then to really take a look at them and to see how they've shaped the larger narrative. I think if we tried to read it cover to cover, I mean, there's plenty of people who are reading it cover to cover. I think the fun part here is is sort of unpacking this and breaking it down and examining it from multiple sides and um, really putting that into our our meta context knowledge so that as we come into season two, even though it's going to be really a lot of different stuff, we're just giving ourselves a richer context for this, for the legendarium and for what Tolkien had, um, had written so many years ago. Right. So for this first reading, so a month from now, we're going to be doing the Ainulindalei. That is the first portion of the Silmarillion. And it's a chapter, but it's only a few pages. That, that's the song where the world is created by the Holy One. So if you want to read along with us, start reading now. Uh, it'll only take you a month to read those four pages. <laughs> Only a month. Okay. All right, cool. Well, that's exciting. That's going to be uh, something nice to to keep our um, our sort of Tolkien fires lit as we uh, eagerly await for season two. We have no idea when it's going to come, but uh, hopefully we'll be we'll be ready when it uh, when it does arrive. Good. So, any other thoughts to wrap up season one? Really, I just I'm hopeful. I also hope that they improve the writer staff for season two, because I do think that there were parts where the writing was lacking. And especially when you put it up against Andor and House of the Dragon, the dialogue just didn't work for me sometimes. And I think that this show has the potential to be one of the greatest shows of all time. I really do. Like, wow. even still, wow. even with this season one we have, I think that this could you know, they're throwing a billion dollars at it in production value. If you get the writing up to par, this is going to go down in history as one of the greatest shows of all time. 
But as it stands, I can't say that about this season, and I wish I could, because I have such a great love for this material. Uh, the books will always be there for me, so I, I'm not worried about the show ruining the books, but uh, right. I just want to be able to love this show at least almost as much as I love the books. Fair enough. Um, I think my final thought would be, before we get into our listener feedback section, my final thought would be a shout out to all the, to everyone who was involved in the making of this, from the carpenters to the electricians to the script wranglers, you know, all the administrative folks, as well as the showrunners and the writers and the actors. I mean, it was a huge, huge effort. And it's such an important piece of work to so many people. I just think, wow, you know, if you could have been one of the, you know, the best boy or the, you know, uh, on the catering crew, uh, you know, or craft services, or to have been at all involved in the production of this, just thank you. Like, because this was an awesome uh, piece of entertainment and we're just really excited for, for the next round. So I think that's my final summation is beautiful show and I can't wait for more. Cool. I think that's a good note to end that part on. Yeah. All right. So we did get some listener feedback that we want to get in before uh, we get into our interview with Marilyn. Um, We got quite a few. So our first email up is from Luke from Kentucky. Uh, Luke says, my only real issue with this episode was that it took Galadriel and Halbrin six days to travel from Mordor to Eregion. While the travel this season has felt fast throughout, they never put a definitive. Uh, they never put a definite time it took to get from one place to another. The most famous map of Middle Earth has a legend that displays mileage. Even if they are riding magical horses at fifty miles a day, it would still take like a month to get there. Just feels like they don't expect us to know how far away each place is. John, what do you think about uh, Luke's email here? Well, every Tolkien scholar knows that horses in Tolkien's universe, actually expel their Hroa as they go, <laughs> which makes them go a hundred times the speed of a normal horse. No, I'd say, of course it's stupid. But right. but you know what? Like, I got over my fear of jetpacking in season eight of Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm just okay with it. I do agree with you, though, Luke. They should not have put a definite time on it. Just say, hey, we got here as quickly as we could. Done. Right. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. Just from a writing standpoint, is don't box yourself in by uh, giving specific times, uh, but just make it take however long it takes. Little armchair ri- script writing from Dave and John here. <laughs> we should be the writers. No, I couldn't do better than these guys. So every time I criticize the writers, I'm like, well, I couldn't do better, but I'm going to tell you how to do your job anyway. All right. Next up, we've got Ted from Cincinnati. Uh, he says, guys, first off, a little perspective uh, of many of the podcasts have uh, perhaps overlooked. I watched the entire show with my daughters, age 15 and 10. If you do read this, hi, Molly. Hi, Piper. A uh, little shout out to the kids there. As a family watch, Rings of Power scored a 10 out of 10. My daughters were enthralled, and we watched each week as soon as possible after school on Fridays. It also expanded their interest in all things Tolkien and fostered many discussions where I tried to be a poor man's lorehound and explain things to them. I just want to make sure that some of the harsher critics keep in mind that Amazon is going after a bit of a broader demographic. At least in my house, it's paid off big time. So um, he's got some more points, but what do you think about that first uh, paragraph there? I mean, I love feedback like this where people are enjoying this with their families. Uh, You know, I do think that that's a huge part of Amazon's 
uh, demographic target is they want people who are ordering packages for their kids to pop on the Lord of the Rings, who are sharing, you know, it's dads sharing things they love with their sons, mothers sharing things they love with their daughter. Um, you know, when I was a kid and the Peter Jackson films were coming out, I was, you know, I was in like elementary school when that was happening, you know, I'm dating myself, but you know, my friend who I went to the birthday party of to see the return of the King, his dad had like the Lord of the Rings chess sets and going to that movie was just such a magical experience for them. I, you know, I think of myself, I told this story on the Andor podcast. My dad brought me to see Revenge of the Sith when I was in elementary school. And that made, that was a great memory for me. So I think that you're absolutely right that the, the Amazon's goal is to give parents sort of an excuse to share their love with their children. What I wouldn't give to see Amazon book sales numbers <laughs> to see how much uh, you know the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and you know all of these other books like just just to see what the sales are you know post season one. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I have uh, I use my Kindle a lot. I read a lot. If you couldn't tell by this podcast, <laughs> and um, I have from time to time subscribed to Kindle Unlimited just because there was something on there that I wanted to read and it was cheaper than buying the book. And Kindle Unlimited is their subscription service, like the Netflix of books, whatever. And they've had Lord of the Rings on there for like ever, for like years now. So I think they're trying to push those subs too. Given the marketing push that they put out in front of this, it would be crazy for them to not follow up on the backside with book sales. Right. Um, I mean, I think that's why the Fall of Numenor book is coming out, too. That's part of the, you know, the Tolkien Estate and Amazon both want those sales to be big. Wait, what's that book? I, I missed that. Oh, the Fall of Numenor book. It's a they've collected the writings of the Second Age and they're publishing it. I think November something. Oh, interesting. Okay, well that dovetails uh, pretty well with uh, Ted's um, the rest of Ted's email. Um, it's a bit long, so we're going to edit it for some length. But uh, he wants to talk about Numenor, and he says that this was one of your most anticipated things to see on screen before the season, referring to you, John. Um, I was right there with you. As a result, the letdown may have stung a bit more. I listened to your show the other week, and you floated the idea that perhaps the entire Numenor storyline could have been excluded from season one. Sure, that could have saved precious minutes to develop other storylines, but Numenor is central to the entire Second Age. We needed it. My hindsight 2020 opinion is that they were just rushed through, uh, or they rushed through Numenor way too quickly to show the impending fall. As a result, most of the characters were scheming, inscrutable, unlikable, or even annoying. They were played as no more than just another kingdom of men, no different than Gondor or Rohan from the trilogy. But they are so much more than that. We never got to that in the show, not to mention their long lives that were introduced. So he goes on with some other ideas and thoughts. Um, but I think this is, he brings up an interesting point here is, is that the Numenor that we saw from an urban scape was cool. It was beautiful. It was architecturally amazing. But I didn't get any sense, and I'm with, with, with um, Ted here, that the Numenorians were any different than the Southlanders, uh, other than their you know, quality of life, so to speak. Hmm. You know, that's a good point. I ask you this, though. What happened on Numenor this season that we're saying this was rushed? Like, what actually happened? Not a lot. Right. And uh, yet... They were very important to triggering Mount Doom, right? Like, that's basically 
they were the plot device to have Mount Doom explode. Were they? Did they? Did they need to be there for Mount Doom to explode? They did because that's where. No, we didn't. They didn't need to be there for Mount Doom to explode because they were going to explode it anyway. But they created the plot, the dramatic tension in the plot, and this is where. Uh, without getting into the uh, pyroclastic flow of it all. Don't utter those words in my presence anymore. I'm so tired of it. <laughs> Shout out to Bald Move Art Club, who made a cool new sticker that should be out pretty soon. I don't want it. Just like Jon Snow, I don't want it. Anyway, the point being is, is that they that the Numenorians were necessary to push the plot or to create the dramatic tension to to have that key turn be a big dramatic moment as opposed to, you know, Adar, you know, standing around and he's like, well, I got the sword and I guess I might as well explode Mount Doom. Here you go. Click. Instead, we had to have a whole, you know, um, MacGuffin chase and a little bit of uh, misdirection. And so it created the, the dramatic tension. But otherwise... Really, we it was just sort of some introduction to some characters that are going to play uh, important roles uh, down the storyline. I think if you change a few choices of the Southlanders on where to go uh, and who's doing what, then you don't need the Numenorians even at all to do that dagger plotline. Um, also, I'm not going to go into too deep, but I do think it was a silly decision to have nobody check that the dagger was in the the, the wrapping. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think that there was any reason to have Numenor in the season if you were going to do the plot that you did. Now, if you wanted to start with the sort of rot of Numenor, um, and in a way that wasn't just like random riots in the street, but you see like actual political rot happening... Right. Then I'm in for it. But I don't think that we got that. And I wish that we did, because I don't feel like I know any of these Numenorians that well. Um, And many of them that I do know, I don't like very much. So, yeah, I just think it was a wasted opportunity. Now, they could, again, do an excellent job with Numenor next episode, uh, uh, next season. But you know, we'll just have to wait and see for that. A couple years. Yeah, we'll just have to see what they they bring us in season two uh, when they get to us. Right. Hey, John, why don't you read us the next email? All right. We've got E-Hoop saying, I'm surprised you aren't grappling more fully with the idea of the Swedish death metal elves actually being Maiar. I wouldn't say that was particularly more violent to the canon than the mere existence of these characters. The Maiar come in various levels, and most of the ones named anywhere in the core four are pretty powerful. I think the Aina specifically says many were corrupted to the service of Melkor, and I don't think... They were specifically all Balrogs, possibly even the Fire Spirits. You've got vampires and werewolves for a start. Not Elvish of Ear, but Elvish of Manor, not conclusively male or female. Lesser creatures of the order of Thuringwithil seems a fair fit. Powerful, not a match for Gandalf. David, what do you think about this? Yeah, so, well, I have my my question for you is, is that... The- there are, I know of werewolves. I didn't realize that there were vampires. And those are Maiar? Mm, there's a lot of, like, hand-wavy stuff in the Silmarillion. Uh-huh. Where they're like, oh, yeah, there was a bunch of stuff other, over here. There's unnamed things. Wait, what is an unnamed thing? Uh, right. It's very H.P. Uh, uh, Lovecraft, honestly. But I think that, yes, there are various beings. We actually grappled with this question, though, with Marilyn in the interview with, are they Maiar? Could they possibly be Maiar? And what could they be if they're not? And she had some good answers that enlightened me. So tune in for that. Next up, we've got an email from Matt Y. Matt says, obviously I was wrong about the Halbrand Salron thing. Episode eight was really good though. The best of the show. 
They really did a good job with the reveal of uh, Halbrand as Sauron, even though I still don't like the idea very much. I think it has problems both with the show, why was he on the raft, and with the lore, and also with the concept of repentance. If the show is trying to depict Halbrand as temporarily repentant, Halbrand did all those evil things. What we saw from him was a concealment and a deception, not a sincerity and actual repentance. So I don't buy him being on the raft, coincidentally, truly trying to leave his former life and being dragged back into the darkness by Galadriel. And that leaves him being the manipulative, deceptive guy that he is, pulling strings to get what he wants. But the way the show depicts the events in Numenor, I also don't really buy the idea that he manipulated Galadriel into this, nor that he is so all-knowing that he could have anticipated her jumping overboard and meeting him on the raft. The only people who knew Galadriel would end up in the water were the people who had seen the trailer, so maybe Sauron watched those. (laughs) Oh, boy. So, um, I do agree with you, Matt, that uh, I enjoyed the Halbrand Sauron twist. I thought they they just kept laying it out there in you know uh, very obviously to us the whole season, and then when they revealed it, it was still surprising and still enjoyable. So I got a real kick out of that whole little storyline. I think the thing with the repentance thing, I think this gets into a number of questions, which we do talk about with Marilyn a little bit, but I think to touch on them here. His idea that he's trying to fix up Middle-earth after Melkor trashed it, he's not repentant in the repentance sense, but he is a person with a point of view, a person. He's a, a, a powerful being, a Maiar, with a point of view, and his point of view is, let me fix this place up and let me rule it at the same time. I don't know what they had in mind with the Hellbrand on the sea idea. A quick interjection, I think that might be something I read or saw somewhere that they might be addressing specifically in season two. I think they left that purposely open. Okay. All right. So. Because we, we do have this open question of Sauron's repentance, as you've brought in here, Matt. So, we've got um, Halbrand Sauron, you know, saying, I, I don't think that he's repentant. As much as he is being the manipulative guy, but he's being manipulative with a purpose. He has a vision and a uh, desire to achieve something where I would guess Melkor Morgoth really just wanted destruction and chaos. Yeah. I think um, Halbron is a little bit more organized and he actually has a, a point of view on how things should be done. And to that end, he manipulates Galadriel uh, for those ends. I'll tell you exactly why Sauron is less evil than Morgoth. And this is Tolkien's words. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but basically Sauron is less evil than Morgoth in that, at least for a time, he was able to serve someone besides himself. Interesting. He dedicated himself to Morgoth at the expense of himself. Okay. And that is something that Morgoth would never have done. Wow. He's keeping it leal. He was very leal to Morgoth. (laughs) Extremely leal. Even post-Void leal. So yeah, Sauron has less evil juice, I guess, in him than Morgoth does. And as we've talked about on this podcast many times, everybody is repentant in Tolkien's universe. So I think that the writers were trying to at least make us guess whether the repentance was genuine or whether it was a manipulation. Now, could it be a little of both? 
sure. Could Sauron be sort of teetering on the edge of, do I go the good route? Do I go the bad route? Uh, if I get with the elf, does that make me more or less likely to get welcome back home to Valinor? You know, a lot of questions in his head. I, I think that he's probably more self-serving than not, but he certainly does have more of a capability to ally himself with someone than his master did. Can I ask you a question there? You just said um, everyone is, repent, is repentant in Tolkien's world, or, or did you mean to say everyone is redeemable? Redeemable. Sorry if right. I misspoke. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, he, you can be redeem, redeemed, whereas Melkor wasn't repentant and got cast into the void. Halron is trying to do something, and he's trying to still be relevant and be part of the world by fixing it. Uh, but he's just not willing to own up and be repentant and then to get forgiveness, I would guess. Well, Sauron has a little bit of Thanos energy in him, too, whereas he does think that under his regime... It's true. People would generally be better. Right. People would live better if they lived in an organized society and not in these haphazard kingdoms that go to war randomly. Uh, and th these peoples who just fight like dwarves and elves and different factions of men... So I do think that Sauron thinks that under a united front under Sauron, the world is a better place. And so, you know, he's wrong, I think. Uh, I think Tolkien thinks, but he does have some Thanos energy where you can see that his motivation is not entirely selfish. So, you know, John, uh, we do talk a bunch more about um, Sauron Halbrand in the interview with Marilyn. So if you want to get into some more about that, uh, keep listening after the feedback section. Okay. Lastly, we have Abdul from Manchester, UK. Firstly, I want to apologize for not following your podcast earlier. I heard your introduction on Bald Move with Aaron and just couldn't get past your pronunciation of Galadriel. Uh -huh. See, I said it. I said it the wrong way on purpose there. Yeah. Uh, petty, I know, he says. No, that's not petty. I, I get it. I get it. It it just yeah just a comment on that you know we we've gotten I think we've probably gotten more feedback about pronunciations than anything else and you know it, it's not like we tried to, to do that on purpose it, podcasting is not always easy uh, and so you know apologies to all of you for our mispronunciations and we're glad that you stuck with us and we hope that you found the the content uh, enjoyable regardless of our our tongue twists and malapropisms. Speak for yourself. I'm not sorry. <laughs> All right. So he has feedback for us. Amazon's pursuit of the next Game of Thrones reminds me of DC trying to match the MCU. They've looked at the end result and didn't do the slow burn development. Game of Thrones succeeded with inexperienced writers. Check the Rings of Power. We've got that. A couple of nerds that know the books, but not how to do TV. Check. We can match that. The original Game of Thrones pilot has never been released. Okay, I want to respond to something on that. Okay. The difference between what the D&D &D crew at, uh, at on Game of Thrones got in terms of literature and what these showrunners got could not be more different. George R. R. Martin was a screenwriter. He wrote dialogue in a way that it would play well on screen. Many of the most memorable lines in season one of Game of Thrones and the first few seasons of Game of Thrones are direct lifts from the book. I think that's a, a point that's often overlooked is that Martin knows television, knows movies, knows how screenwriting works, where Tolkien had none of that in his concept when he was writing. Right. And especially when you look at something like The Second Age, where you have 
biblical, really, truly biblical things. You know, when they made the Prince of Egypt movie, did they go to Exodus and just take the, the dialogue between Moses and Miriam and, and Aaron? No, they, <laughs> they added songs and, they, and they, had to, they had to space it out a little bit. They got Jeff Goldblum involved. But in the end, they couldn't adapt that story the way it was written because it's just too dense and it's too uh, factual, I guess. Factual in the way that like it reads like a history book. And it's the same thing with the Second Age writings, with the appendices, and even if you got the full text of the Silmarillion, which, where it's more extended, it's just not going to play on screen. So I think that that's the big issue here, is that they are playing, they are forced to play a lot more jazz in the Rings of Power than they ever were in Game of Thrones until season, like, seven. Yeah, it's um, a, a lot of dense material that wasn't intended to be put on screen, and it was always intended to live inside of our own heads. And I, I think there's a lot of well-known information from uh, Peter Jackson when he made his films about the work that they had to do to get the adaptation to flow on screen for us to have the, the care for the characters that we want, especially if you don't know, you know, the, the written material. And then the pacing and the way that different plot lines trigger into each other. And uh, so the idea that we can compare um, the Double Ds and Game of Thrones to Tolkien and, and uh, Rings of Power, it's, it's a difficult comparison. There are so many circumstances that just don't match up to uh, allow us to do that. I think on surface, there are a lot of things that look... Um, easy to draw conclusions from a couple of young inexperienced writers uh sort of a well-known you know written ip those two things are true but they don't necessarily equate uh they're, they're not on equal footing for us to be able to make that strong of a comparison right exactly and even if you look at the jackson films tons of the quality lines in there were lifted from the books whereas there just is no dialogue here to pull from and that's a problem if you're if you're trying to match the tone of a work that doesn't exist. I think uh, Abdul's uh, la brings up a last point here in his email: the move to the UK will that help or hinder future seasons? John, do you have an opinion on the move from New Zealand? Well, Abdul, it helps you. You could be an extra or a production <laughs> assistant. I don't know. You could do whatever you want. Um, as far as the show, it really. It depends on so many factors, because first of all, the problem with the show is not the visuals. However, the crutch of the show, where it does falter, has been the visuals, because everyone who has a criticism of the show has a caveat, but it's the most beautiful show I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely. And I have both of us have, have stated that multiple times. Right. And so if you lose that, if you can't match those visuals in the UK then you might have a problem. Now, that being said, I've taken a train down the English countryside. It's beautiful. I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff there. There's tons of beautiful nature there. You know, the highlands in Scotland. There's just a, a ton of places where you could do your best to mimic or maybe even just create something new in Middle Earth. So I'm not so concerned about that. I mean, time will tell if, it, if it's good or not. But um, I, I know that they're doing it to be able to run multiple shows out of the same hub. That makes me a little bit nervous. Uh, but in general, I think the UK is a fine place to shoot. My guess is that it's going to 
benefit the overall production, mostly because you geographically, you're not so far apart from each other. To get actors, it's not that the New Zealand film industry isn't capable. I'm, I'm sure they're more than capable. But to have studio heads and uh, actors and all the other supporting stuff all located in you know Europe and an easy reach to the United States where these things are going on, I think that's going to maybe help them in indirect ways because the writer's room has a lot of liaisoning work that they've got to do. You know, once the scripts go out and rewrites go out and and changes come up, um, the showrunners and the writers do maintain some degree of, of communication with the production teams. And so having that more centrally located, I would feel, and I'm not a professional filmmaker, so this is just idle speculation on my part, but I would think that that may make things a little bit easier for them. With the Jackson films, yeah, you could just locate, great, we're, we're going to be shooting for a couple, two, three years, just relocate yourself for a finite period of time. We do our thing here, we're done, and we're back out. Here we've got five seasons of television, which has its own pacing and its own cycles. And I think having things um, uh, a little bit more geographically condensed, I think, might help them in the long run. David, if the Wheel of Time ends up shooting in the same location as the Rings of Power, (laughs) do you think that the crew of the Wheel of Time is allowed to touch the set pieces of the Rings of Power? Or do you think that there's like big red tape, like, hold on, hold on, stay in your Ranland area and uh, don't come anywhere near these elf props? It'd be funny to see some little Easter eggs show up in uh, a scene or two, wouldn't it? I want to see Elrond dueling Rand. With, or, and then uh, maybe we could have some Aes Sedai rings, right? Because they use rings too, don't they? They do use rings. I mean, they, don't, they wear rings. They, they don't really do anything. Yeah, we could have some fun with that. We could definitely have some fun with that. All right. Well, I think that's the end of Abdul's email, although he, he compliments Andor, uh, which I agree. Andor is great, and you guys should uh, come over to the Andor podcast. Absolutely, Abdul. Thanks for writing in, and thanks for everyone for writing into your feedback all season long. It was a lot of fun to get your emails and um, uh, comments on Discord as and Twitter as well. So thanks, everyone, for sticking around for all of that. Um, John, we should probably uh, take a quick break here in a second before we get in the interview with uh, Marilyn. Just a quick reminder, check us out on our Patreon. Keep subscribed to the Lorehounds feed. We're going to keep having information coming out. Um, the interview with Marilyn is long. Uh, that's why we've put it at the end of this podcast here. That We recorded it with the intention that this is a leisurely, it's it's like it's a leisurely walk in the woods. So, you know, listen to it in that spirit. Um, take your time with it. Uh, and we just hope you enjoy. We get into a lot of deep topics and um, really turn the whole season upside down, turn it around and examine it from a, a lot of different angles. And it was a lot of fun to have that kind of conversation with her. John, any uh, final thoughts before we take a break and then jump into the interview with Marilyn? You know, thanks for being with us all season and listening to our voices as we ramble about Tolkien. I hope you'll join us for more rambling about the Silmarillion next month. Uh, don't forget to send in your questions about Ina Lindelay or any other Silmarillion questions, but I'd like to keep it mostly focused to what we're reading. Uh, and we'll, we'll hopefully see you next month. Great. Thanks very much. All right. So let's take a break, and then we'll be right back with our interview with Marilyn R. Pukila. 
And we're back. Marilyn Pukila, welcome back to the Lorehounds. We are so happy to see you again in our recording channel. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. It's, it's delightful to be here. It's going to be quite the walk through the woods. Indeed, indeed. Uh, as I was putting the notes together for this, I was like, oh my gosh, there is so much stuff going on here. And I just felt like, gosh, wouldn't it be lovely to take a fall day and just stroll through the woods and have a, a lovely conversation about Tolkien and uh, history and mythology and all this good stuff? Well, we'll get through as much as we can. <laughs> indeed, we will definitely try. Um so first up on our notes, I we have a I have I have a mea culpa, and I thought we could use this quickly as well to um, uh, as maybe a little uh, teaching moment might be too uh, heavy of a word to, to say, but I got I fell into a Wikipedia trap, and on the last Lorecast I was talking about a thing called Nodens. And that had to do with this Latin inscription and somehow Tolkien's involvement. And there was this insinuation on a Wikipedia article that that was a, a potential inspiration for him. And uh, you let us know that actually that might not be the case. Yes, I have the great good fortune to have read um, John Garth's excellent book called The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien. And one of his appendixes lays it all out. It's it's very complicated. I'm not going to get into the details, but in essence, sure. there were several people who made a lot of assumptions, and the assumptions got picked up. Everybody wanted it to be true, right. because it's so cool to think, about, ooh, the Hobbit's ring and the curse, and oh, must be Tolkien because he was here 50 years ago, or probably not quite that long. But anyway, it's a common mistake. You know, reference librarian, what can I say? You know, you, you, know, you get to know the sources, and... Um, yeah, Wikipedia, not always your friend. Great start, as I always said, great starting place, but no, don't Hope end is there. never mere. Always check what you find there. Hope is never mere. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. I'm still not entirely convinced I want to take advice from Gil Gallant, but um, <laughs> we can talk about that. Well, anyway, so, so suffice to say that the, the Nodens thing, it was, it's more of a, uh, he had a very minor engagement that he did apparently he didn't even go to the physical site he he commented on some stuff it's a very very light touch thing but all of these points line up really nicely and, and i think that's something that we traded back and forth with emails a little bit is like we humans love to see patterns and we love to make meaning and here is a great case where there were connection points and people drew dots and then surprisingly, it still is persisting on the Wikipedia article. I'm going to blame Tolkien uh, and on And in a very this, authoritative article. He's trained us to seek an answer to every question <laughs> in his work. And uh, we, we'll find them even if they're not there. Uh-huh. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up very nicely. And, you know, scholar that he was. It's because so many people have drawn from so many of the sources. You know, the concept of a magic ring is virtually universal. And having become famous... You hear the word magic ring, you think Tolkien. But his rings actually came from inspiration from the Ednas, which he read as a student and studied and eventually taught himself. So that's, that is, you know, if you're looking for origins, that's really the best place to look. We definitely have a note about um, uh, talking about rings and magic and stuff later on in the episode. But before we get into that, I think, I don't know how John's feeling about this, but I, I am desperately interested on what your 
hot take is, Marilyn, for episode eight and the season as a whole. But let's start with episode eight. Oh, golly, this is the hardest question for me. Um, how, do I con- <laughs> how do I condense it all into... Shoot from the hip. Shoot from the hip. Um, well, let's see. It was the best of times. <laughs> it was the worst of times. Does that sound familiar? It landed the third point of my list of three egregious and unnecessary lore breaks. Because for me, one of the things about Galadriel that we all knew was that she was never deceived by Sauron. Mm-hmm. So there goes that one out the window. Interesting. Now... I happened to see a New York Times interview with Charlie Vickers talking about the character of Sauron, and if we want to get into that, there is some possible explanatory whatever. You could blame it on the time compression, because they seem to have been representing him as being in his repentant phase now, when actually his repentant phase was thousands of years prior. But everything we know about Galadriel, she never trusted her uncle Feanor, she had discernment from a very early age. And I'm just so disappointed that they didn't allow her that. Um, it makes for a character arc. It makes for good learning. It makes for huge complications. I really hope that she sent some swift messengers to uh, both Numenor and the Southlands. Because she lent him her credibility. And now... You know, that's, what do you that's think in general about sort of their decision to shoehorn Galadriel into the second eight stories? Because I think that's sort of the root problem there is that, you know, Galadriel was somebody who Tolkien did not have in his original conception of the Silmarillion and, and in those stories. And he mm-hmm. had to sort of put her in there later mm-hmm. and figure out ways to work her in. Did the show make the right decision in making Galadriel the focal point of the second age stories? I think so. I really do. Um, there were a lot of logical reasons from a from a television media perspective. I like her arc. I really do, mm. with this one massive exception. What I saw in her was a sort of a Joan of Arc figure. And if you start tracing that history, it's kind of interesting to see, because she was championing this thing that everybody else said was crazy. You know, she was a peasant girl, she heard voices, she said, I have to put the king on the throne. She went off and the whole world kind of bent around to her vision. And she was right. And then she was eventually arrested and tried for witchcraft and f- because she wore men's clothing, which was a horrible thing, according to you know the early 1400s Europe. Um, and she was burned at the stake. So I don't think the Galadriel will have that in. But the, the, the woman warrior... Um, championing a cause, bringing a king to the throne. I mean, there, there's just a lot of resonances there, which which I found kind of interesting. I think what this gets at, though, is one of the really tricky parts for the series, which I'd wondered about all along, and that is, if you are making elves and a Maiar, your viewpoint characters, how do you avoid over-humanizing them? Elves are not humans. Maiar certainly are not humans. But if we are going to relate to them, they have to act like humans. And be played by humans. Right. Charlie Vickers, the the actor who played Halbrand, made a big point of this in this interview I mentioned, and said that, in essence, he was playing Sauron as a human genuinely all along. And an interesting piece of it was because he was afraid of the gods. So he didn't even let himself think about himself as anything other than human for a good part of the whole plotline. Which is interesting, but... Now we have contradictions. I mean, he's a Maiar, so yes, he can zip from one place to another magically. And yet he's stuck on a raft in the ocean. 
I mean, it. it's really, if you start thinking about it, it just becomes very, very complicated. And I don't know what the answer is, um, because the elves, as were portrayed in Peter Jackson, we didn't see enough of them for enough of the length of time for that problem to be a problem. They could be distant and elvish and, and so forth, because we didn't have to see their arcs, as it were. But with Galadriel as the main focal point, yeah, we've got to see her as human. And I loved it, actually. I really liked the way they said, look, this was a horrible war that went on for hundreds of years. It had an effect on everybody. Here's one effect it had on a character that we know and we love. And we see that happen throughout centuries. We see, as she said, that her dearest friends and her high king can no longer tell her apart from the evil that she's seeking to eradicate. She reaches her lowest point, as we know, with Adar, when he says, if you are seeking the evil, look in the mirror. And she recognizes the truth of it. And I think that's why she faces the famous pyrocrastic flow. I think she has, she's utterly devastated when she realizes, he's right. Look what I have become. I'm handing it over to these other powers that I know exist. And what happens, happens. And so then the very next episode is so tender. And we see her with Theo, telling him not to take on the guilt, telling him all the messages that she's also telling herself. I like that Galadriel. I see in that the seeds of the wisdom of the character that we know and love. And then we take her back for the final episode, and suddenly she's this utterly deceived person who is being told, well, it's your fault that I'm rising to power now, which, by the way, is a classic abuser technique to say, if I'm evil, it's because of you. Oh, but you can save me if you bind yourself to me because you're good. I mean, ah, that was, that whole scene was so disturbing to me. And what's also disturbing is that I still see and hear and read people saying, oh, but Sauron was trying to repent. And I'm like, please, <laughs> recognize domination and abuse for what it is. Tolkien was very clear on that. He, in his, in his Mythopoeia, which he wrote very early on, it was a poem that he wrote to C.S. Lewis, in which he said, this we know, evil is. Or, of course, you think from the Silmarillion, when um, Manoe says, uh, when, when he hears that Feanor says, at least we may make deeds that will be worthy of song, and Manoe says, so be it, and thus we can see that good may come out of evil, and Mandos replies, and still remain evil. To me, Feanor will come soon. The... Um the the issue with with uh, Halbrand Salron and that abusive relationship, I did see a uh, comment on the internet's uh, various places about how you know um, Sauron is is a master gaslighter here, absolutely, and and that there were for a lot of people this was a very uh, it rang true for people who've had to suffer through, live through, uh, survive through these kinds of abusive relationships. And so yes. uh, it's one of those things where, at least in this particular part of the, the show and this particular dramatization, well, I'll it was also a say very that effective this performance. This Galadriel that they've painted here, I actually thought that the deception worked with this Galadriel because you can see how single-minded she is in her quest to avenge Finrod. 
and how she would be willing to overlook some sloppy details on someone to achieve that goal at this point in her journey. Now, obviously, she gets wiser as she goes on. I mean, you know, she's thousands of years old already. Uh, She probably should be pretty wise already, but I didn't... I, it was certainly an uncomfortable scene with Sauron, and, and you could see that he's being truly evil there. Um, but it, I guess it didn't bother me from a narrative standpoint. Yeah, well, it's funny, because I remember thinking, well, if he really is Sauron, it's, how are they going to switch from being this charming Han Solo-type rogue to being the second most evil being in Middle-earth? Well, well you give him an Anakin Skywalker cloak, <laughs> and uh, then he's not Han Solo anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it it's still I right to the very end, I was really hoping when he said, you know, the famous line considered a gift, I said, Oh no, 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 no. And of course it all just kept rolling on from there. But again, this New York Times article indicates that there may in fact be an Anatar oh. in in the future of the series. So you know, we've only seen the first season of five. Yeah. So any sense of evaluating the whole is really kind of silly. Based on what we have at the moment, I still wish that they had made Halbrand one of Sauron's chief uh, smiths. He got sick of it. He fled. He tried to get away. And that's why he kept sounding like Sauron and acting like Sauron and so on and so on. And was trying to break away and trying and so forth. Um but I don't know. There was a lot of people who who wagered a lot of internet points that um, <laughs> Halbrand was uh, one of the future Nazgul or king of the king of the dead. Yeah. Uh, so I know there's a lot of upset folks. Uh, not upset, but you know what I, I mean. Do. Like, oh shucks, like they they thought they were doing some good theory crafting, and I like those um, theories myself personally a lot. Yeah. Until it was made clear that he clearly could not have been Bronwyn's husband. You know, when she looks at him and says, are you our king? And I'm like, okay, well, I guess that lets that one out. I still was hoping for the king of the dead, because they could have had him interacting with Isildur. And, I mean, there was a lot of very rich potential there. But, you know, they chose a different line. And, again, I'll put it down to the time compression. But even however young she might be at this point, I still come back to the fact that she didn't trust her uncle Feanor as a quote-unquote elven child. I think this is where we could, uh, and this is one of the notes that I had in 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 our opening discussion here of hot takes for uh, episode eight and for the season overall. This is all very shippy test. Uh, <laughs> you know, are we on the core and are the changes made necessary for the medium? We... Galadriel, I know everybody out there was on me last time because I was doing my Galadriel. You got to own it now, man. Uh, Galadriel, I think I should. Uh, not, yeah, yeah. not uh, just do it the other way for now. <laughs> if you want to go back to it, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, well, I'm going to try anyway. Galadriel, she's our protagonist, right? She's our she's a, our one of our primary persons that we're we're following through the storyline. And she's a well-known character, obviously, in, in the writings. They had to make changes. We know that they had to make changes for time compression and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So sort of on the, on the shippy test question, um, both for this episode, Gladriel in specific, and for the season overall, what's your assessment at this stage? Well, as I said, I have a list of three egregious and unnecessary lore breaks. Bring them. One is, one is Galadriel being deceived by Sauron. Okay. One is their whole handling of Valinor, 
as a good conduct prize mm. and something that's in the gift of the High King to deliver. And the third one, of course, is the Silmarillion tree. For me, I, I really have to, I really have to just set those aside. I cannot find a way to make those fit. Um, okay, but. I accept that this is what the what they're doing. I devoutly hope that next season, Kirdan will come in and say, what are you talking about? Elven <laughs> souls don't die. Are you kidding me? Why do you think I've been ferrying people back and forth all this time? And possibly even Celeborn say, no, no, this is not true. Hold on. Where is Celeborn, Marilyn? Can you tell us? Okay. Well, I can tell you why we didn't have him in the first season. We didn't have him in the first season because it would have been impossible for Galadriel to do all the things that they wanted her to do if she had a husband around. And even more so if, if they had a daughter by now, which a lot of people are hoping they have, because otherwise, ew, you know, Elrond's wife isn't even born yet. That's that's kind of icky. And there again, we come back to this problem of elf versus human. You know, they, trying to think in those terms of ages and, and so on and so forth, it, it, it can get sticky, let's just say. And then there's the whole additional question of... of how much it takes out of you, quite literally, to bear a child. Yes. And the story of Miriel, Feanor's mother, that is a, a good example. And I think it ties in somewhat with Tolkien's own experience, because their first pregnancy, uh, Tolkien and, and his wife Edith, she almost died giving birth. He wasn't there at the time, because he was still under the command of the army, and he was stationed far away. She had a very difficult pregnancy. Um, it took a long time for her to recover from it. And um, pregnancies were very difficult for her ever after. So this was probably in the back of his mind when he was, you know, doing his crafting of who and what elves were and, and the effects that these things would have. And just to be clear on the story of Muriel that we're talking about, because I think that this is something we haven't discussed on our podcast before. Um, this is the mother of Feanor, uh, who died shortly after giving birth to him because she gave so much of herself to him. Is that right? Well, again, this is this is the another underlying point that I'm still kind of queasy on. Elves do not die. They just do not die. What happened was she was so tired that she left her, her body behind and went to the halls of Mandos and said, I don't ever want to come back. Now, that was not common for elves. Eventually, they would be rehoused. Mm-hmm. And that's what some people call serial longevity. Um, but this was the thing that she refused. And so her body lay beautiful and unco- incorrupt in the Valinorian gardens called Lorien. And her husband sat there and called to her, and, and she just didn't respond. And eventually, he decided, okay, she really isn't coming back. I'm still young. I still want more than one child. I want to remarry. The elves did not remarry. That was just not done because of the nature of the relationship that they built. So he had to get permission for this exception. And then if you want to do a really deep dive, you can get into the whole the, the, the whole discussion between the Valar about the rights and wrongs of the whole matter. But because he remarried, he had two more sons, and this is where the conflict rose between Feanor and his two half-brothers. Right. Because the Vanyar got into the Noldor line, and everybody's cranky about it. And Well, I think Fanor, I mean, any child, grieved his mother's loss, didn't understand why. I mean, how would it, how would it feel right. if you were told, well, she could come back, but she chose right. not oh, to? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, traumatic, traumatic. I mean, that's got to be even worse. 
why, why would he ever give away anything he loved ever again, like the Silmarils? Right. And why would his father not think he was enough for him and have to marry this strange woman and have more children for crying out loud? You know, I mean, it. you can see the seeds for a whole lot of stuff for which Feanor was responsible. Please don't hear me as a Feanor excuser because I'm not. I, I can see the origins of the later deeds. We're, we're explaining. We're not excusing. Exactly. Exactly. Coming back around, you've got, you know, your sort of three things that you're kind of bracketing. You're sort of boxing them up. You're setting them aside. We're going to keep an eye on them. As a season of television, as, a season, as, a, as eight episodes of entertainment, were you entertained? Did you enjoy, to a greater or lesser degree, what at least that they were trying to do outside of some of these key lore issues for you? I was deeply engrossed. I was very drawn. Okay. I was, yes, entertained. Interestingly, what I realized was the storylines that I love the most are the storylines that don't involve any of the canon characters that we already knew. So my favorite storyline is The Stranger in the Harfoots, followed very closely by Bronwyn and Arondir and Theo. So none of these characters, these are all invented characters, which means that the showrunners and the scriptwriters are free of the constraints on the one hand of lore people like us who say, oh, you did this, you didn't do that. And on the other hand, from the rights people saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. I mean, golly, talk about being between Scylla and Charybdis. I mean, walking the fine line. Uh, when you consider that, I think they really do have a remarkable achievement on their hands. Having said that, it's disconcerting to get thrown out of a story by, wait a minute, what did you just say? A Silmaril in a tree and there's a Balrog and a what? What? Say what? Elves can die? Excuse me? Which story are we reading now? So, it's, it's jarring that way. And can I just say, I, I, got, I got really tired of all the callbacks to PJ. I mean, if you want to do callbacks, do them to Tolkien. The Peter Jackson movies, they are their own thing. There was much to love about them. There were a few things that I really hated. But that's, that's their creation. Yes, have something that has some continuity for all those people who are coming in because they need the Jackson films. But it's gotten to the point now that every time there's another Jackson line, I'm like, oh, can we please come back to this story? <laughs> um, so I'm, I don't know how many other people feel that way. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm in the minority in that. But um, it, it breaks it for me. I, I'm out of the... It breaks my suspension of disbelief, which Tolkien maintained you had to do in any kind of visual medium. You know, he had this thing about um, the, the secondary world, and you had to craft it so well that while you were reading it, you were in the secondary world, and you were not thrown in, back into the primary world. But he, he maintained that this was not possible to do in visual medium, because you always knew at some level that this was still the primary world. You know, theater people called it the fourth wall and breaking the fourth wall. What you were just saying there about Tolkien's resistance to um, visual adaptation of the works, mm -hmm. you know, we've gotten a couple of questions from folks who are like, why is the Tolkien estate holding back? Like, mm. why, you know, why does Amazon, what, what, what is it that with these eight episodes and, you know, all of this kind of stuff and the Jackson films, mm -hmm. maybe that's a, a, a tonal thing that's resonating through the estate 
through the, the, the decision makers about how rights are distributed and stuff like that is that if Tolkien had a suspicion, not of, of the motives necessarily of the studios and the producers and the creators as such, but the, uh, a suspicion of the fact that can you take these words that he was writing and this whole question of the primary and secondary worlds, and he distrusted the ability to bring that into, this, into a visual storytelling medium, mm-hmm. then maybe that some, of, some of that is still resonating through all of how the rights are being handled, at least by the estate. Because we know that the film studios and the video game companies, they're chomping at the bit to you know, lay out every single piece of IP that they've got rights to. Yeah, in, in Tolkien's own time, it was the Disneyfication he was afraid of. You know, video games hadn't even been thought of, but it's a similar kind of a thing. Yeah, everybody loves to go back to the famous letter number 131 that he wrote to Milton Waldman about his intention, where he said he wanted to make mythology and sketch some things in full and leave others just sort of partially done so that people with other minds and hands using paint or music could further amplify. I think he was thinking about how uh, the Kalevala was used as an inspiration by Sibelius to write lovely music inspired by the Kalevala. And Galen Kallen, a famous Finnish painter, was inspired to paint beautiful paintings of the Kalevala. He never said, oh, and write additional stories in my world, in so many words. So... I see some license there. I'm not sure I see as much license as other people appear to be seeing. Interesting. Now, you guys know more about the rights situation than I do, but I believe I'm correct in saying that it was the rights that limited them to eight episodes a season. Correct. So That's as we understand it. That piece has nothing to do with the Tolkien estate. Right. I think the, the Tolkien estate, because Christopher had the copyright on the Silmarillion. Yes, my understanding is he had complete control, and he was so not happy with any adaption he'd ever seen that he truly was not likely to let that go to anybody. Now, how his son Simon feels about it now, that's an open question. I, I have no, no answer to that. And it gets even murkier from there because different rights holders at different levels right. um even though there's through lines, there there could be a character that has a through line to multiple things, and and do do are there different claims mm-hmm. and different derivative rights, and so it gets really murky. And we have the estate, and we have uh, Simon, and and uh, and the other folks. So yeah, it gets uh, gets a complex thing. Anyway, we're getting we're drifting off onto that the rights thing. I don't want to get too far on that. So Marilyn. It's fair to say you were entertained and you have concerns, but you're looking forward to the remaining four seasons. Yes. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that assessment, but I, my follow-up question is, as you are a card-carrying member of the Tolkien um, expert class, <laughs> you work, you you move in with, the, you move around with the circles of, of folks who are are um, Tolkienists. I guess I don't know if that's a if that's a fair uh, way to describe it. Uh, Trekkies versus you know Trekkers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, how is the the Tolkienist community at large? responding to the overall season oh golly it's all over the map okay you know i've i've seen people in fact the tolkien scholar who i regard most highly and respect the most has refused to watch them at all interesting 
but this person also refused to watch the Jackson films. So they were very embedded in the text, still are, because they're still with us. And I've seen other Tolkien scholars who are, you know, watching it, evaluating it, enjoying parts, not enjoying others. I can't evaluate it from the perspective of a TV series. I don't, I don't have that set of tools. And I don't approach things very analytically. I approach them much more from a perspective of the storytelling and how they are pulling me in emotionally. And I think an awful lot of people are saying, this is really fantastic. I mean, if you look at the amount of time and energy that the Tolkien community as a whole is devoting <laughs> to this series, you know, positive or negative, they're paying attention. And you're going to uh, a moot yes. uh, soon here, too. So I'm sure that'll be a primary topic of conversation. Um I've been listening on the side to the Rings Wrap-Up, the Prancing mm-hmm. Pony uh, podcast, mm-hmm. and I've really been enjoying their content, so shout out to them yes. uh, for adding to my own personal enjoyment as well and professional uh, knowledge. Um, but it sounds like you might be getting together with those folks, and, and they certainly, uh, at least from that particular podcast, it, it's a mixed thing, right? There's yeah, there's prop, there's plot problems here or structural elements there what we don't like, but then we're enjoying these mm-hmm. aspects mm-hmm. Of, over here. So I think that that really points towards a, a young production, a production that's still trying to find its feet. Mm-hmm. Season ones are often very hard, and this has got to. I mean, Jeff Bezos was giving these guys notes, right? You know, like. Yeah you've got a lot of pressure and you got a lot of eyes on you to perform and, and to create something mm-hmm. um, that is palatable out of, for a lot of different audiences. To be honest, I think that some of the negativity may have been inspired by the fact that it was involved with Amazon mm-hmm. and with Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Because, you know, culturally, people have their people that they love to hate and resent and so forth. So um, that might not have stood in their favor in terms of audience reaction, it definitely stood in their favor in terms of budgeting and the flexibility and freedom with which to create this. But I think, I think the thing that won them the most was when they went to the Tolkien estate and said, here is our vision, and demonstrated how much they love the lore. That is a message I keep hearing over and over from members of the Tolkien community who have had the privilege of hearing them speak or talking with them directly and asking the questions is they know their lore. They know all of the histories of Middle-earth volumes. They know the letters. They are very, very steeped in it. So whatever lore breaks they are making, it's not because they're ignorant of it. I think we can all be clear on that. John, uh, I want to get your take a little bit on this uh, aspect of the conversation and in terms of what you're seeing and and because you you move in some of these circles as well uh, for the you know deep I lore readers, them, I would say um, I, uh, I've not mooted. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, mo- is mooting no, no, a, no. a verb? I I, I don't know. Um, but <laughs> to moot, <laughs> to moot, <laughs> to moot or not to moot. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I have my finger a little bit on the pulse. Um, I mean, first of all, I think we have to outright dismiss that there's there's a there is a segment of the fandom, and I'm not saying like the scholars and everything, but but the fandom online that's just upset that they've made a show that features women and people of color as leading characters in in Tolkien's work. Yeah, sure. I don't consider but, them fans. Yeah, I don't consider sure. them. But yeah. that is a very vocal percentage of the noise, is what I'm saying. Element. Um, yeah. So let's remove that. And then I think that you have 
you have a lot of people who who are just upset that they make any lore change at all and are not willing to consider that there there could be a reason for it. And then you have people who are, and, and I think that I, I try to be in this category, and Marilyn, I, I consider you part of this category, is we're looking at the show and we're taking the good and we're asking some questions of how can they tighten it up? And, and maybe mm. why did they make certain choices and can we make better choices going forward. The tree Silmaril thing is the most confusing choice to me. Um that that I you know I talked about it at length in an earlier podcast and I'm not gonna rehash my own arguments, but my I guess my biggest argument now after reflecting on it for a few weeks is that people who aren't as familiar with the lore have been asking me on our Discord and whatnot what is going on with this? Why is this happening? Exactly. And I don't think that it was an effective storytelling tool. I think it it only muddied the waters. It only made it more confusing when it's already a pretty confusing history for someone uh, on Red and Tolkien. So I hope that they can tighten it up going forward. I hope that they can make smarter choices on what they change. But overall, I think we saw a beautiful season. I think that when the writing was good, it was great. When the writing was lacking, it it was lacking. So I, I hope that they could just have it only good going forward, or mostly good. Yes, I enjoyed uh, the the watch party. Um, Rings of Power had a response panel that were newbies that didn't know the books, maybe saw the movies, maybe didn't know anything about it at all. And I was always interested to hear their take for exactly what you were saying. And they were confused by the whole sum rule in the tree thing. So right. I think you're absolutely right in that assessment. And it is useful to go to people who are new to all of this as a sort of a, a, a test of, all right, how well did this actually work? Did this really make sense within the context of the world that they're creating, within the context of the stories they're trying to tell? I think um, uh, we got a piece of feedback the other day, wh- which um, I think we'll, we will have, by the time we record this, we will have uh, uh, touched on that feedback. But uh, one of our, our listeners wrote in to say that, he, uh, that they were watching it with their children, uh, who are teenage years, if I remember correctly. And as a family, they were enjoying the heck out of it. <laughs> um, and that it's it kindled a fire for... Tolkien and the legendarium. I'm like, yes, that's great. Like that to me, like I'm getting a little emotional about it actually right now because there's a whole new generation of kids who are going to come in and they're going to go, okay, what's going on here? What is this stuff? My mind is blown. You know, give it to me all. I want to read it all now. And then, and especially those teenage years where you can just read for hours and hours and be lost in the secondary world. I just am. I take a lot of heart from that. What percentage do you think makes it past the Council of Elrond? <laughs> <laughs> now, now. How many times? You probably didn't read the poetry either, right? So, I mean, you No, know. I skipped all that stuff. I, I read it. I, you know what? I want credit. I read it the first time. Okay. You have credit. You got your props. Okay. Give him some internet points for that. Yes. Yes, for sure. <laughs> um, I've, I've heard an awful lot of people say exactly the same thing, and I think across the diverse spectrum of responses that you were just describing, this may be one thing upon which we can all agree, except for the haters who are going to hate and set those aside, that it is bringing more people to Tolkien. And at the end of the day, Tolkien can't be broken, bastardized, destructed, whatever, because the books are on the shelves and you can pull them out. Now, having said that, you can look at something like The Wizard of Oz, which... The original books, Frank L. Baum's books, have been almost forgotten 
in terms when compared to um, the the movie that they made. So some of that has to do with the time period and what people are interested in. I mean, he was quite the socialist, and that came out in the books. So it is possible, you know, for for something like a film to take over from from the material. But I think that may be partially a reflection of the material, and does it stand the test of time? And the reason why Tolkien stands the test of time, among others, is that he is drawing from stories that we have been telling and retelling for thousands of years. And this is why they are such good quality, and this is why we can return to them. We can reform them in some ways, because the basic things are still there, like the magic ring that we were talking about earlier. You know, That is a through line that goes back a very long time, and so we can relate to that. And the basic structures of good and evil, and how do you make choices. We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be right back with more of our interview with Marilyn. I, I want to. I think there's a good segue jump here to to the uh, the top of the the notes section. Sort of now that we're out of our general takes and, and sort of where we are, and I, I, I throw this to to both of you. Um, something that occurred to me in in watching at least episode eight and and thinking back into some other episodes was the hand of Arrow Arugula. Um, and the influence that the creator god in the legendarium has on the events and characters of uh, Middle Earth and the and the stories that we're seeing here. And I had this thought uh, about: Did the TCBS also feel like they were being guided by the uh, you know their with their Christian belief in a creator god? Did they also feel inspired and, and like they were meant to come together? So it's sort of a strange two-part question, the, the hand of Eru in the Middle-earth world, and then if we roll that back out, you know, how did the TCBS, how did Tolkien and his, his uh, young uh, compatriots feel that they were being inspired? Because this is certainly Tolkien's experience with the TCBS certainly was the launching point for this creation that has, you know, uh, been echoing out through to us. There's, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but um, in one or more of the biographical materials, the core of the TCBS did believe that they had come together in order to rekindle a fire in a world that had grown cold, by which they meant a restoration of appreciation of beauty, of faith, that they saw um, culture going in a different direction from that, towards materialism, towards the violence of war, of course. They all experienced that, and only two of them came back from it. So, unquestionably, they had a sense of, we Quakers would say, being led. They felt they were being led to do something to help the world not lose sight of the things that they treasured, that they valued. And yes, it was one of them was an artist, one of them was a musician, a couple of them were poets. 
And so they wanted to use those tools to reintroduce the world as they saw it to beauty. And for Tolkien, it was a lifelong concern because at the end of his life, he began to wonder if he had overstepped. And again, this, this poem I mentioned, Mythopoeia, in the early part of his life, actually affirms um, we make by the measure in which we're made. We are creatures of Creator God, and therefore it is not just our right, but our responsibility to add to the creation as it currently exists. And towards the end of his life, he began to be worried that he had overstepped. And this is why he was so concerned about the morality of works. You know, did he, why did, was it right to consider them being a race that, you know, it was good to kill when they were sentient beings? Were they sentient beings? Let him down this whole line. Um, so, yes, um, in that sense, um, the hand of Iluvatar, or God, whatever name you want to use, was certainly present for Tolkien throughout his life. Um, and I think it was also there with, with these, these four young men um, when they were together. And later on, I don't know how overt it was for the Inklings. Um, they were all Christians of one form or another, but they were also quite varied. And uh, they might not have spent as much time actively talking about it as they did talking about their literature, but they still felt that this is they wanted to bring what they believed into what they created. So, in throughout the storyline of season one here, uh, certainly Nuri's uh, arc comes to mind, you know, in, in her engagement with the stranger, um, Galadriel, uh, sometimes. Uh, but then we have a very conf- uh, uh, confusing or, or murky area there because of her influence with Sauron. She's feeling something. She's feeling compelled by something. But, you know, sort of, uh, what is it? Um, I don't know who else is being led by the hand of God here in the storyline. And at least with Nori, like, she's a show creation, right? That is that is out of the writer's room that they've created that character. And so at least with that character, uh, it feels like they're, they've brought a little bit of that spirit down from the TCBS in, and at least put it in her. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. We have the whole concept of free will versus fate and the way I explain it is the music was as reality for the elves. Humans had their own choice of changing the music. And the way Elru sets it up is the way that his song will be sung, the way that his pattern will happen, is when people can freely choose the good, freely choose to make things happen. So, Fate only works if free will is, in fact, freely operating, which is a difficult concept to think about at first. But in the end, you recognize that in creation, they are free beings, and you want, you cannot truly say yes if you cannot truly say no. And so this is why... Melkor is perfectly free to say no, to go off on his own, to do his jazz, as you guys like to say, to riff, and eventually to just be a force of destruction for the music. But he was free to choose that. And that's the point. That's the most important point. 
you know, you don't want someone to love you because they have to. You want someone to love you because they choose to. And to my mind, if you are positing a loving God, what what other kind of relationship would you want? So, choice is always there. And yet we can also say, okay, we were fated, because Iluvatar can choose too. He can put a leading in Nori's heart, so that Nori says, I feel led to do this. I know I'm meant to do this. I know that this is for me to do. With utter conviction, and even when she decides, okay, I've had enough, by that time her family recognizes, nope, this is yours to do, and here's your backpack, and off you go. But of course, the, the crucial moment is, is when he's confronted um, the cultists, and he's so afraid of his power, and power is a fearful thing. Yes. That was another one of the nine themes that I taught, the danger of power to everyone except the deities. And he's a Maiar, for all we know at this point. So he's very powerful, and he's very afraid, because he doesn't have all the, the back knowledge to go with it. And she's the one who says to him, only you can show what you are. You choose by what you do. That is classic Tolkien. That is absolutely Tolkien in a nutshell. And the contrast with, with what Sauron said, with what Halbrin said about, you know, you made me do this or you, you can make me do that. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, we're going to put a pin in that thing. We'll come back to, around to Sauron really quick. I want to address something really quick with um, The Stranger um, and the line that he says, you know, I am good. For a lot of TV watchers, they were like, ooh, that's um, not great writing. Like, could we have said that more artfully or, or brought that around somehow? But would you either, and this, I think, th- throw this to both of you, John, um, I definitely want to get your opinion on this, is like, was that a Tolkien thing to say, even though maybe the dialogue written itself in the script is a little bit shy, but was that sentiment that that um, the stranger was uh, giving us in that statement, I am good, is that Tolkien? The line, I am Groot, isn't a good line either, but if it's delivered <laughs> with the right emotion, then it can mean something. And I think that uh, Groot Gandalf, Grootdolf, uh, was doing a good job of delivering this. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think that's Tolkien. I mean, he's he's declaring himself for a side, and Tolkien in Tolkien you got you have sides. You have two sides. You have good and evil, and you got to pick one. In Tolkien, you have good which exists, and you have evil which is the result of bad choices. Evil is not an entity in and of itself, and those who see evil see with crooked eyes. Again, I'm quoting from that Mythopoeia poem. I I got to tell you, this was the only time in all eight episodes. I was cheering. I was fist pumping. I was shouting, yes, 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 yes through that whole scene. I, I loved it. So, I don't know, maybe they were thinking about folks like me when, when they designed it. But what else could he have said, given how they'd set up his character up to that point? Well, he did get pretty eloquent very quickly after that. I'll say that. I I think that they did that a little too fast. That was a little too whiplashy, but um, it's all right. We were so used to not hearing him at all, and suddenly here he is speaking in this beautiful, sonorous tone. You know, it was like, wow. And a different accent. A different accent. Well, come on. We don't see people, you know, going to the bathroom and sleeping and all the rest of that. So, you know. Right. Constraints of television. We show the things that are most... 
most relevant. Something that that um, with with Nuri as well, and and with the stranger is is this question of our uh, you know the actions we take are the thing the things that define us. We can say a lot of things and we can feel a lot of things. But it's when we take action in the real world, and and there are consequences from that, and and impacts on other people. And so I was really looking at Nuri's influence, uh, ever present influence on the stranger, and how that came to be so important for the stranger to make his choice. I think John and I talked before about with uh, Istari that they are the you know they are inhabiting the 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 terrestrial plane here if if you will i i'm not sure how else to describe it they are put into human form so the flesh is corruptible right he is, they are susceptible to to pain and to death and to hunger and to fear as well as to love and care and and warmth and all of these other things and so for for him to make that choice and to see, for us to see that choice uh, executed so that he has now defined himself and then that, that opens himself up again. I thought that was uh, uh, an, an important aspect of that whole storyline. And maybe that's why part of the whole Harfoot storyline was so appealing because it was really dealing with something very vital for all of us. And I just now, it just now occurred to me, I'm hearing echoes of a certain council that many people don't like to read all the way through, <laughs> in which... Elrond says, if I understand aright all that I have heard, this task was appointed to you, Frodo, and if you do not accomplish it, no one else. However, it is a heavy burden, so heavy that I do not lay it on you. But if you freely choose it, then I say your choice is right. And even though Hurin and I can't remember the list of the names of famous humans were assembled here, your place would be among them. So, yeah, it's definitely a Tolkienian theme. John, thoughts? Is Turin a good person? Yes, actually. Uh, sorry, I, I just wanted to bring in a little bit of moral complexity just to push back on what we've said already. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about good and evil in Tolkien and how it is a work that's known for more of a black and white morality, at least compared to works like A Song of Ice and Fire and other grimdark works. Um, and and I'm looking at Tolkien's Legendarium, and I'm seeing all these layers of gray. And I'm, I'm thinking about Turin Turambar from the Silmarillion, the, the man who committed a, a ton of atrocities, but also committed a ton of great deeds that helped the world and probably had a net benefit on the world. Um, and... Is that a good person? Uh, was uh, di- was he a good person by the world standards, by his personal standards? And I think that there's so many complex moral questions in Tolkien that um, this show is starting to dive into more than, I guess, the main Lord of the Rings text does. For sure. I'm delighted with the conversation between Adar and Galadriel mm. about orcs. Yeah. Um, they are going there and props, you know. Um, Tolkien actually wrote a version of The End of the World, which Christopher chose not to include in the Silmarillion, in which Morgoth breaks free from the void, comes back, there's a massive battle, destruction of the world type battle, and he is eventually confronted by Túrin with his sword, and Túrin is the one who kills Morgoth. 
Turin is Kurlevo from the Finnish Kalevala. And Tolkien first encountered his story when he was 16 years old and was very drawn to it because he was an orphan, he was poorly raised, he had a lot of strikes against him, and yes, he made some bad choices. So there's your moral complexity. Anybody who says that Lord of the Rings is strictly black and white just hasn't read it closely enough or doesn't have enough of the background knowledge. We want, we want to have good versus evil. We want it to be clear-cut. We want to know the good guys and the bad guys so we can be on the quote-unquote right side. But that creates the very division that we're trying to avoid. And it allows us to say, I'm on the good side. I'm not like that person. And so as soon as mm-hmm. you start to tell them, well, actually, you know, there's this and that, look out, put on your asbestos suit, because people will fight the notion that, yeah, I could actually probably make those choices too. Or, depending on my circumstances, you know, if I had the curse of Morgoth on me and my family, uh, yeah, I would expect a lot of bad things to happen. And in the course of that, yes, I would make a lot of poor choices. How does that, how does that reflect then on the plot of the Southlanders mm. and this burden that they're carrying of being um, formerly, and, and Halbron talks about this a little bit too, is that, you know, we were um, servants of Morgoth, mm-hmm. servants of, of uh, Sauron, and we, were, we are doomed to be forever such. And, and, you know, we have this sort of elf occupation army and, or, you know, and, and all of these other things. And, and when Waldrick says, you know, you know, have you heard of him, lad? Um, you know, and, and gets into this, wow, wow, there is a secret cult of, uh, of Sauron happening down here in the South, you know, that they're, they're stuck with that, um, that categorization. Or even bring in Bronwyn, who's about to go over to the dark side when she thinks that there's no saving Theo if she stays with the light. Um, sorry, we just covered Star Wars, and now I'm speaking in that terminology. Uh, but uh, but truly, like I think that that's a great example of, of we just talked about on the Star Wars podcast, uh, the banality of evil. Uh, the, the regular mm. people getting yep. pulled into evil deeds by a need to survive and live a normal life. Yeah. No, I was thinking of Bronwyn, too. You were right to watch us, for we are destined for the darkness. It's how we survive. Perhaps it's who we are, who we will always be. That was a really chilling moment. Yeah. And deeply distressing. And it happened after she saw that hilt, which made me wonder if she'd seen it before in some capacity. They didn't pick up on it, so maybe not. I think it's an incredibly human response, because it's hard to fight against darkness when it's that powerful and you your tools are very few and seemingly very weak to the extent that they're um that adar and the orcs were able to convince a number of the villagers who who left the you know the the safety of the tower there to go join them to actually be an assault force on uh on the village. Uh, and so, you know, we can talk about the plotting and how the action was shot and, and that kind of stuff. But the point being is, is when they remove those masks and they see their fellows, these are people that they've known all their lives, um, to be suddenly confronted with the fact that 
our neighbors were trying to kill us. Um, that is a terrible shock. And then to be the person who made that decision, I'm going to go assault my, my former neighbor. Well, I think it was Waltreg who convinced them to turn. I don't think it was Adar. I think by the time they got there and watched, we presume, Waldreg killing one of their own and bowing down on his knees, I think probably the vast majority of them were thinking, oh no, I definitely made the wrong turn, made the wrong choice. And I don't think any of those villagers who were wearing orc suits were fighting of their own free will at that point. I think, again, you know, blood binds was one of Adar's creeds, and I think, you know, they were told, either you do this or we kill you in horrible ways. Um, I mean, I really don't know what they expected when they walked off with Waldrig. I think all they were thinking at that moment, I think physical survival was uppermost in their minds, and it's very difficult to think in any other terms when that is, in fact, the case. And to hold a what some people might call a higher view of, yeah, I'm going to die, but at least I'm not going to kill somebody else before I do it. And when you have a very powerful voice of somebody who's been sort of the village leader all along saying, look, let's take our chances with the other lot because we're certainly not going to win here, that can be very persuasive until you see what it actually means. Mm -hmm. And then the question, how far are you willing to go enter into poor choices becomes very challenging, if not moot, because you're there now. And so, you know, you get a whole series of bad choices. When you have a whole series of bad choices, you might as well flip a coin. Because there's no moral consideration there of, well, here's one good choice. Nope, sorry, I I blew that one when I left. That one's gone now. So how does that color, how is that what you're saying just there, color our perceptions of Adar. If we go with the theory that he was an elf who was taken and tortured and and altered and, you know, I, I, I don't know how to describe the, the process that he Corrupted. went through. Corrupted is a good Corrupted. word. That Fair was in my mind, too. So how do we view Adar, then, in this... Um, with moral complexity. He's probably one of the most morally complex people of all, and he's very, very, very dangerous. Because he has just enough of what we might call compassion for his children to lend credence to, well, maybe it's not such a bad thing to explode a volcano and destroy a whole ecosystem and kill a people and, 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 and. What you were saying before, David, is it's, it's, it's our choices it's not what we say, it's what we do. And so a daughter can talk a really good line about how much he loves his children and how horrible Sauron was, and that's why he left, and all he's doing is giving them a homeland and committing ecocide and genocide and a few other things along the way. And he's not doing anything to curb his children's behavior. He's not trying to teach them how to plant seeds before they go into battle. No, he's in, he's, he's encouraging, encouraging it. it. He actually... Yeah, they, they actually cold-blooded murder people to uh, find out the location of the right, sword right. key thing. And seeing his interaction with Galadriel, he spoke truth but in a crooked mirror. And again, he's, it, it's very similar to what Halbur and Sauron does to her later. Mm-hmm. Which, which makes me think, I'm really wondering when Adar said, I split Sauron in two, you know, I have this sort of tin foil hat theory of... Maybe Adar and Sauron were, 
or one in some fashion at some point, and he split him in two by splitting himself off. I don't think that's true. Uh, it everything, everything. Well, yeah, yeah. The the, the things that that I would say. Sauron, if we <laughs> Finrod's uh, Sauron <laughs> Im- impression uh, was saying, I think is very Adar is touch the darkness again. It's taking that statement from her brother and twisting it in a way that gives her permission structure to do evil. Exactly, exactly. And then when they're called on it or it's pointed out to them, I didn't have a choice or I'm just right. doing what I need to do to protect my children. But it's like your actions are betraying you because you just stabbed an innocent villager in the gut um, because I made you do it. Um, or, you know, Halbrand, well, you saved me, right? Like, you know, you're the one that raised the army. You did all this stuff. Um, and so when you are then called to account and you're, for your actions – are you taking responsibility or are you finding an escape somehow or an excuse or a circumstance? Two things about that phrase, I didn't have a choice. One, the subtext of it is, therefore, you're responsible or anybody else is responsible. Right. <laughs> Second point, whenever somebody says I had no choice, my question, whether I vocalize it or not, is who did you give your choice away to? Because, like it or not, we always have a choice. They may be crappy choices, but in the end, I really do believe we all have a choice. And I know there's social determinists who say, no, there's no such thing as free will and choice. It's all a question of cause and effects going back, you know, whatever that argument is, which just doesn't hold water for me. But, you know. I'll point out something here really quick. Um, uh, earlier, our uh, our podcast Liege Lords, uh, Jim and Aaron, covered uh, uh, Asimov's Foundation yes. season one earlier this year, and they had on, or no, wait, was it, was it, John, correct me if I'm wrong, who did they have on that was the philosopher? Was that in relation to Foundation? That was in Westworld. That, that was in Westworld, yeah, sorry, my bad. Um, and they had a, 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 a philosopher on, and it was really fascinating conversation mm-hmm. about choice and, and uh, mm-hmm. do you really have... Uh, choice in this world and stuff. A really interesting thing, and I think when it butts up against, uh, at least with this Tol- you know, version of, of Tolkien's moral philosophy of, like, you have to have choice because otherwise you can't be good or bad, or bad make bad. You make bad choices or you make good choices, I guess. Is that it? Well, again, the, the notion that everything that was created is good, and it becomes bad if we make poor choices would be sort of a simplified version of it. I have not seen the t- Foundation series, but I've read the books. It was Westworld, just to be to be on point. I, oh, I know, I know. But but to, to, to touch on that, for those of, of listeners who do know it, I love them. I think they're fabulous. And I love that his point is, if you get a large enough mass of people and planets and so forth then things become more predictable, and so you can, quote-unquote, predict the future. It's the individual, the one person that throws a wrench in this whole system that had, had trucked along very nicely for however many hundreds of years after his Selden's death. It was all messed up by, by this one unexpected sport, I think is a genetic term for it, you know, somebody who came along with unexpected abilities that could throw everything in a cocktail. And so the people who were tending to Selden's plan had to 
really start improvising like crazy, which must have driven some of them crazy, they had to make all kinds of free choices to try and bring things back into a line um, that was leading towards a better outcome than what seemed to be happening with this one individual that, that you know, the one grain of sand in the gears that really threw everything out. Don't know if Tolkien ever read Asimov. Doubtful. I think he might have. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say. I, I doubt he did because it was, it was just too science fiction, but I think he would have appreciated that, that underlying principle. That would be a fascinating uh, to you know to get a roundtable of uh, authors together. I'll tell you what: if we're ever in Tolkien heaven together, everybody, let's do an interview <laughs> with the two yes. of them, and uh, well, and we'll figure it out. We'll hash this out. Uh, it won't come out on the Lorehounds feed. You'll have to go to the the heavenly Lorehounds feed. <laughs> John, uh, do you have anything you want to sort of close with Marilyn on? I think that they should bring Madros in to chop down the Silmaril tree and then fall into a pit. <laughs> That's how you fix the Silmaril tree problem. <laughs> so I'm going to take that as a as a um, from both of us, Marilyn. Thank you for being a great sport for coming on the podcast with it. Thank you for like just you wrote an email and to to explain to us what a Barovian was, <laughs> and um, who knew that we we got to have such a, a you know, wonderful and excellent company as yours. And I hope we can find more opportunities to engage with you, not just in season two, but if anything else comes up, um, where we can talk about mythology and history and psychology and all of this good stuff. I, I personally have in, not only enjoyed our conversations, but yeah, it's just meant a lot to have you here. I'm deeply touched by that, and the honor is all mine. Um, I'm thrilled and delighted. I never dreamed that you know, one simple email would result in this, and then I'm having a fabulous time. Um, <laughs> you know, I can tell my relatives that they can listen to me talk about Tolkien. I mean, spending two hours talking about Tolkien with people who know and, and love him, I mean, what, what, what could be better, right? All right, uh, Marilyn, again, thank you so much. Um, where can folks find you on the interwebs if you want to be found? Well, I did send you a link, I don't know if you've seen it or not, to my... Um, B Press selected works page, and that's got information on, on my uh, publications and so forth. So we'll put that in the show notes. Since I've retired from Colby, my, my, my faculty page doesn't really, I mean, they should probably just take it down, but I think they leave it up in case people are looking for me. They see retired and they say, oh, okay, fine. Well, Marilyn Arpakila, thank you so much. It's Gentlemen, been an absolute pleasure. And um, I can't thank you enough. Be well. All right, well, that's a wrap with our interview with Marilyn Arpukila. Thanks for sticking around. We hope you enjoyed that conversation. A reminder that you can find us on your podcast application of choice by just searching for The Lorehounds. We also have our Patreon, patreon.com slash The Lorehounds. You can join up there and get all of our podcasts ad-free, and we've got a few other bonus uh, benefits there at the various tier levels. And lastly, just a reminder that we've got Andor happening right now. We've got White Lotus starting in a couple of weeks. We've got Wheel of Time coming whenever we get an announcement from Amazon. And uh, we'll probably have a few other um, projects going along. Oh, of course, we've got the Silmarillion that we're going to be doing on a monthly basis as we go forward. So make sure to check that out. All right, David. It's been a pleasure doing this season with you. Thanks, John. It has been a blast. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, and um, I'm glad we're uh, keeping on. The Rings of Power Lorecast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. 
You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondageatbaldmove.com or write into Jim and Aaron at dug2deepatbaldmove.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds. And for more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcasting platform. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening.